Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 54. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, although due to post-Article 50 triggering concerns, uh, depending on who's asking, I'm also my new British name of Timothy Dobbington. And no, of course I don't do a podcast that criticises the government and Brexit. No, no, I spend my time making sure people's British passports are blue once again. Not in colour, I just write bum on every page. So this week's show, predictably, is pretty much all one big Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Yes, Prime Minister and hollow vessel body for the next Sith Lord, Theresa May, wrote a six-page breakup letter in a sort of it's-not-you-it's-me manner to the EU, and they responded by saying, it's cool, we're in an open thing with these 27 other guys and gals, and you are always the annoying demanding one anyway, so yes, it is definitely, definitely you. Don't expect everything you want on a plate, especially when the plate was a gift from Greece. Au revoir, Alfie Zane. Bye. European Council President Donald Tusk said it was not a happy day and told the UK, we already miss you, which is a sentiment I'm sure he won't feel after two years of having to deal with the UK's petty threats about a process we no longer have a say in. Like the petty threat in the Article 50 letter that basically said, we won't help you stop terrorists unless you're nice to us. Yes, it turns out when David Cameron said ISIS wanted Brexit to happen and everyone screamed Project Fear about it, they didn't realise it was because a UK outside the EU would happily give the terrorist group a leg up if they thought it would help our innovative jam sales. Brexit minister and tormented albino gerbil David Davis said it wasn't a threat, but it was an argument for getting a deal. Yeah, you know, in the same way Daniel Day-Lewis's character in There Will Be Blood had that great argument for the deal about his oil wells. You know, the one that went, One night I'm going to come to you inside of your house wherever you're sleeping and I'm going to cut your throat. Classic deal. Luckily, former Tory leader and denizen of the undead Michael Howard was there to alleviate any tension by suggesting that May must stand ready for a Falkland-style invasion over Gibraltar because there's nothing like trying to negotiate the best possible trade agreement with a body originally created to stop war between European nations than by starting a war with a European nation as soon as you've left it. Howard's reasoning for suggesting a UK versus Spain battle over who wants a tax haven rock the most was apparently because we must make it absolutely clear that we stand by Gibraltar and what they want. 
Well, considering 96% of Gibraltar wanted to stay in the EU, the best way to stand by them would have been not to Brexit at all. It's not at all dissimilar to our relationship with Scotland, you know, a sort of global treat them mean, keep them keen tactic. I wouldn't be surprised if we followed this up by demanding Gibraltar call us daddy before inhaling gas, dry humping them and asking them to gag us with a strip of blue velvet. This was all prompted by the EU saying that Spain should have a veto over any Brexit deal that applies to Gibraltar. A reasonable ask considering 95% of Gibraltar's imports come from Spain, as do 94% of its tourists and half of its workforce. So not having free movement makes The Rock less of a working overseas territory and more the sort of place Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery would want to break out of after breaking into. The chief minister of Gibraltar accused Spain of bullying the EU and using them as a bargaining chip before calling Donald Tusk the alt-right insult of acting like a cuckold. I reckon it's only time before he points out that actually all lives matter and that Brexit was really about the ethics of gaming journalism. Theresa May laughed off the idea of a war with Spain, presumably because we've got 309,000 undercover spies there already who tear the country apart by constantly demanding British food in Spanish restaurants in louder and louder home counties' accents. May said the policy of talking over Gibraltar with Spain would be jaw-jaw, which I think means she's going to design a hugely irritating CGI character with racist overtones that make everyone wish the whole thing had never happened. Oh wait, no no no, she's already got Liam Fox. Meanwhile, the right-wing press and some of the most bonkers Brexiteer conservatives are still banging on about getting blue passports, bendy bananas and imperial units, which I'm pretty sure are just stormtroopers, aren't they? I mean, yes, that is three Star Wars-based gags in just the opening of this week's podcast, but let's face it, there are a few films with so many references that sum up Brexit better. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. I mean, that may as well have been the entirety of Donald Tusk's response to May's Article 50 letter. But yeah... You really do wonder if this whole thing couldn't have just been averted if we'd all just taken blue felt-tip pens to express readers' passports and handed out damaged, malformed fruit with every issue of the Daily Mail. Still, on the plus side, with expensive exports and no one to pick our own fruit, we'll soon have no bananas at all, and with the pound as low as it is, it doesn't matter what colours our passports are, as we'll all be doing staycations. So ultimately, everyone will be unhappy. Hooray! Thank you for listening to the podcast once again. Um, This week is something a little bit different. What? I hear you cry. Haven't we had enough change already these past few weeks? Which is a good point, actually. I mean, isn't a change meant to be as good as a rest? And yet here we are, post-Article 50 triggering, and I'm bloody knackered, and as you can probably hear from my voice, a bit ill. Um, The latter bit is partly the reason for this week's slightly truncated show, as I've spent the weekend gigging and generally making the weak croak you probably heard on last week's show become so gravelly that if I were to call it hoarse, it would probably have to go through some sort of equine euthanasia. Uh, But yeah, no voice. Uh, Also, this week's interview, he dropped out last minute, so I have something else lined up. And also, also, Parliament is now on a break, and all the news, apart from Trump, which I'm going to get to next week, is, and do you remember the correct term? That's right, it's all fucking Brexit. And worse than that, it's mostly Brexit stuff we've already covered on this show. Uh, More speculation, more hyperbole, and generally things that I'm so bored of hearing now, I'd sooner put a spoon in my eye than repeat them all again for you. So this week, instead of an interview, I have put clips of two speeches by Philip Legrain and Ian Dunt that took place at an event that I hosted last week on Article 50 Day called Stand Up for EU Citizens. Uh, And I've put these on here because I thought they were both very interesting, clearly explained, and will probably put things into much better context than I would have done with my brain full of mucus and my voice like listening to Macy Gray through a broken walkie-talkie. 
Before all that, though, um, hello to the new listeners. Hello. Uh, it's so very exciting to see that this show's audience is doubling on a weekly basis, so thank you very, very much for tuning in. Um, please, please do keep spreading the word and doing whatever you're doing to help this podcast get more hits. Um, please do let people you like know about it. Um, please do find people that you don't like, uh, tell them to quickly look over there and then snatch their phone and make them download every single episode just so it takes up all their phone memory and makes them sad. Ha! Um, if you haven't given this show a review on iTunes or Stitcher or your listening platform of choice, um, then you're in the majority. But if I've proved anything in these last 54 episodes, it's that the majority often make terrible, terrible decisions. So why not give us a five stars on there and gain the sort of badge of honour that you can't wear, and if you could, probably wouldn't. Also, if you'd like to contribute with the monies towards this show, uh, perhaps helping me buy better sore throat preventative medicines, then you can either head to the Patreon, which is about to have new extra stuff on it soon, I promise, I promise, I promise, including a video that we filmed the other day and is being edited right this goddamn second, not by me, obviously, You've, you hear my editing skills every week, can you imagine me doing a video? Um, and you can do that at Patreon, or is it Patreon? Or is it Patreone? Anyway, one of those, patreon.com forward slash parpolebro, uh, or you can do me a sort of one-off buy-me-a-coffee type payment at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolebro. Um, obviously, if you can't contribute, I wouldn't want you to spend your last pennies on it, you know, rather than, say, a tin of beans um, or uh, a last go on a tram. But, you know, this is a free podcast, and I'd very much like it to remain so. But... Uh, any extra money that you do send my way does help me spend a lot more time on this thing. So it is very, very useful indeed. Um, OK, so look, before we crack on with Brexit stuff um, and the rest of this podcast, here are a couple of super quick stories that you, yes, you may have missed. Education Secretary Justin Greening has pledged an extra £2.4 million towards schools in England for extra places and building repairs. Apparently, this will create 600,000 more school places by 2021, which is brilliant. You know, except that with so many schools recently having been forced to make staff cuts, the schools are just going to have even more space for children to not be adequately taught by enough teachers. So essentially, I mean, it's just shoving kids in a place in the day so they aren't outside. It's like a mass child shed incentive. I mean, next, they'll probably give money for more hospital beds while cutting more doctors and nurses and then shove all the ill people in, dob a red cross on the door and be done with it. Greening also promised a new model for grammar schools, saying that local communities would get a chance to say how the selection process works, which is a bit of a gamble, I think. I mean, I've been to certain local communities that have had a fight over how to choose the selection for the village cake sale or where a postbox should be located. Anyway, more on this in a future podcast. The Green Party are now bigger than UKIP in terms of MPs, but still not on TV half as much, which is odd. I guess it may be because sort of green screen technology means other stuff is automatically superimposed in front of them. But on a rare appearance on the Andrew Marr show this past week, joint leaders Caroline Lucas and Jonathan Bartley announced their proposal for a three-day weekend to boost productivity as people would be less tired and, of course, it would allow for better spreading of employment, you know, with people having an extra day off a week, other people being able to do longer and other days instead. And, of course, depending on which side of the weekend it fell on as well, you'd also have a whole extra day to get over all the shouting that you've done at Question Time or the Mar Show. I have to say, though, I am against a three-day weekend, uh, and I think it is terrible, but that is only because, as a self-employed comedian, every day for me is a weekend, except Saturday and Sunday, when everyone else gets in the way of all the stuff I want to do. Also, thank God it's Thursday becomes the acronym T-Git, and that sounds a bit like someone's insulting me, so I'm out. (laughs) 
You know the tampon tax, uh, you know, the initiative that instead of saying, hey, let's make women's necessary sanity products more affordable, instead says, let's keep them the same price and then give the extra money to the charities that help women in a weird sort of let's keep the patriarchy strong by adding unnecessary middlemen, not even middle women motion. You know that one? Well, it turns out that £250,000 of the money from the 5% VAT on tampons and sanitary towels has gone to Life, an anti-abortion charity set up by a man. Well done, everyone. Life aimed to find an alternative to abortion for women faced with a crisis pregnancy. And by alternative, they mean have the baby from your crisis pregnancy. And they've been hugely criticised for handing out leaflets at crisis pregnancy centres with suggestions that there are links between abortion and cancer, mental illness and suicide, which isn't at all true. And their website also referred to abortion after rape as a death penalty. They're idiots, basically. Life say the money is being put towards a project for homeless pregnant women, which will, of course, need double the space and cost twice as much as they'll all have to have their babies whether they want them or not. The Department of Culture, Media and Sport has said that the funding was for that specific project in West London and has declined to comment on whether they had any concerns about it going to a pro-life charity. But it does seem incredible that women are charged because of their biology and then that money is given to people who they think should have even less say over it. I mean, what next? The sugar tax being siphoned off to Willy Wonka? So, as I mentioned, uh, this week's interview fell through because of life, oh life, oh life. And while I have got the same interview lined up for a future week show, which is good, I couldn't arrange a new one in time for this. And my last backup interviewee I interviewed a few shows ago. Who was it? I'm not telling you. You work it out. Uh, so, Drat and Quadruple Drat. So, look, instead, something a bit different, I thought that I would bring you some clips of the speeches at the Stand Up for EU Citizens event I hosted last week. Um, the night was brilliant. It was jointly organised by Canberra Press and Conway Hall, and it was all in aid of the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. It was a lovely, lovely mix of comedy. Um, there were some excellent comedians on, Cindy V, Granny Maguire, Ed Byrne and Shazia Mertzer, all of whom were wonderful. And there were some speeches about the EU from Philip Legrain from Open Policy Economic Network and Ian Dunt, former guest on this podcast, and editor of politics.co.uk. Um, the event also happened to be on March 29th, the same day as Article 50 uh, was triggered, which was a total coincidence as the event was organised before May announced a triggering date, but of course it did dictate much of the evening's material. Um, and I've only put clips of these speeches uh, on this because at some point, um, very soon, the whole first half of the show, including my hosting, is going to be released online. So I've chosen some bits, some sections that you might find particularly interesting, although I have to say all of both the talks are fantastic. And as soon as the full audio is out, I'll let you know on the Parpol Bro Twitter or Parpol Bro Facebook group. Um, so... First up is Philip Legrain. Uh, he is a political economist and writer who specialises in global and European economic issues. And between 2011 to 2014, he was the principal advisor on the Bureau of European Policy Advisors to the president of the European Commission, Jose Manuel Barroso. Ooh, so he knows what he's talking about. Uh, Philip's talk was all about the reality of EU immigration and I and 300 plus people at Conway Hall that night thought it was a very interesting and very important speech indeed. So here is a short clip of that. I hope you enjoy. I mean, it's remarkable how often the exceptional people who come up with the brilliant new ideas that change our lives are migrants. Three in ten Nobel laureates were born abroad. But the fact is, new ideas actually don't tend to come from individual geniuses. They tend to come from creative collisions between people. And research shows that if you have groups 
with diverse perspectives, they tend to come up with better solutions to problems than groups of like-minded experts. And if you think about it, solving problems is what mo most work uh, consists of these days. It's why adding women to an all-male corporate board or adding migrants to a team made entirely of local people isn't just about equal opportunities. It boosts productivity too. If you think about it, it's why a global city like London is so creative. And then you look at enterprise. Newcomers in general are twice as likely to start a business as people born in Britain. The chip in your start smartphone was most likely designed by a company called ARM, which is Britain's most valuable technology company, and it was co-founded by an Austrian immigrant. Britain's most successful low-cost airline, EasyJet, was founded by a Greek entrepreneur. Or you look in Tech City, many of the entrepreneurs are European, including the Estonians who set up TransferWise, which enables you to send money abroad without rip-off bank charges. Overall, one in four startups in Britain was created by EU migrants. One in four. And all of that makes British people better off. In fact, one recent study found that increasing the migrant share of the population by 1% boosts living standards by 2%. So the roughly 5% of the population who are EU migrants make British people 10% better off overall. That's huge. Yet while the reality of immigration is overwhelmingly positive, perceptions of it are often negative. And it's telling. If you ask British people, few of them think that immigration has had a negative impact on them personally. But most of them are convinced that it's bad for the country as a whole. And immigrants stand accused of all manners of ills, of stealing British jobs, of sponging off the state, of eating the Queen's swans. <laughs> and none of it's true. I mean, there's absolutely no evidence that EU migrants take jobs of British workers. In fact, there's never been a higher proportion of British-born workers in employment than there is now. And why is that? Because immigrants, in fact, like anyone else, don't just take jobs, they also create them. So Polish builders create jobs for British people when they spend their wages, and they create jobs for British architects and British people who sell building supplies. If you think about it, the fears about migrants taking jobs are just as misplaced as the old fears that women were going to take men's jobs. And what do you find now? Most women work, and so do most men. Nor is it true that EU migrants are a burden on public finances. In fact, they pay more in taxes than they take out in benefits and services. Actually, they subsidize us. They subsidize our pensions, our welfare benefits, our public services. And of course, those who work in the NHS help keep us healthy too. 
It's not even true they tend to place a big strain on public services. Actually, NHS waiting lists tend to be lower in parts of the country where there are more migrants because migrants tend to be young and healthy, and even those who are older tend to make yes, less use of the NHS than British people. And of course, if there are places where migrants do put strain on local services, since they're paying in more than they take out, they're clearly not to blame for that. Nor is it true that EU migrants are to blame for, for high house prices. In fact, the only study that's looked at it shows that actually house prices are lower where there are more migrants. Um, actually, it's due to cheap credit, government subsidies, and a failure to build enough homes. They're less likely to be in social housing than British people. They're less likely to commit crime. So why then, if none of these terrible things that are said about migrants are true, are perceptions of migration so negative? Well, one reason, I think, is ignorance. A poll before the referendum asked people, how many EU migrants do you think there are in Britain? People who are intending to vote leave said 20%. People who are intending to vote remain said 10%. Actually, the figure is 5.3%. That's about 3.3 million, one million of whom live here uh, in Britain. And while, forever be, while we're forever being told that Britain is being swamped, net migration, arrivals minus departures, was 333,000 in 2015. Now, that sounds like a big figure, I admit. But it's actually equivalent to one extra person for every 200 people already here in Britain. That's a lower migration rate than in Australia, which is supposedly tough. And roughly half of that, so one additional person for every 400 Britons, is an EU migrant. And roughly half of that, so one in every 800 people, is the most controversial kind of EU migrant, which is the poorer migrants from uh, Eastern Europe. Wow, we really are being overrun. And other people say, well, it's the lack of control. That's the issue. And there's a presumption that you know, if only we controlled migration, you'd get up a better outcome than with freedom of movement. But then if you look, the self-selected EU migrants who have chosen to come to this country freely actually tend to be particularly beneficial. They're twice as likely to have higher education as people born in Britain. They're much more likely to be employed than Britons or indeed any other kind of migrant without, of course, depriving British people of jobs. They make the absolute biggest contribution to public finances, which is incredible because we have a big deficit, so most people actually um, are taking out more than they put in. Freedom of movement is actually a huge success. So in practice, hostility to immigration is, is often about broader concerns. It's about the loss of good manufacturing jobs. It's about falling wages due to the financial crisis. It's about strains of public services caused by years of austerity. Or it's about the pace of change. You know, many elderly people are nostalgic for an idealized past, not least because they were young back then. <laughs> and they focus 
that nostalgia on the most visible aspect of change, which is immigrants. But even if we try, we can't turn the clock back. So stopping immigration is scarcely going to address that discontent. Let's face it, though. Opposition to immigration is often about prejudice. People with an emotional dislike of foreigners come up with all sorts of pseudo-rational justifications for their, for their xenophobia. So when immigrants are working, they're stealing our jobs. When they're out of work, they're sponging off the state. When they're rich, they're driving house prices up. And when they're poor, they're driving standards down. Immigrants can't win. They're damned if they do, and damned if they don't. In Britain and across the Western world, the biggest political battle of our time is between those who believe in open, diverse, and progressive societies, and those who want to close borders, stamp on difference, and try to turn the clock back. And yes, of course, there are all sorts of things that are wrong with our dysfunctional and often unjust economic system, political system, and society. And these desperately need to be fixed. But it's neither morally right nor effective to scapegoat migrants for that. It isn't the solution to our problems. That's why I've set up OPEN, a campaigning think tank. We believe in being open to the world, open to everyone in society, and open to the future and all its possibilities for progress. Our website is opennetwork.net. On Twitter, we're open, number two, progress, open to progress. Join us. Help us make a difference. Thank you. Philip can be found on Twitter at uh, Pligrain, that's P-L-E-G-R-A-I-N, and Open uh, are on Twitter at Open2Progress, that's number two, and do check out their website at opennetwork.net and subscribe to their mailing list as they send out a number of very interesting articles on working towards a more open society, which would be nice, wouldn't it, an open society? Um, although someone recently said to me, but aren't racists more open and honest as they're just saying what they think? Which I guess is true, but I'm not sure if that counts if your mind is so narrow to begin with that the opening is only very, very small. They're sort of like those shitty pistachio nuts that, you know, you have to bite open entirely uh, to try and get anything into them and then you get all the shell in your mouth and barely any nut and then you just regret trying in the first place. Right, I'll get to Ian's speech in a minute but first, a little look at The Great It's so clever, isn't it? How if you add the word great to something it makes it sound much, much better. You know, it's like me saying fantastic pile of cow pats. I mean, you'd have no intention of seeing a large amount of cow pats, but now I've told you they're fantastic, you're probably thinking, holy shit, maybe they've been shat out in the shape of an Anthony Gormley. 
The Great Repeal Bill, as explained back in episode 50 by Tatton Spiller from Simple Politics, go back, listen to it, uh, is meant to be a straightforward policy to repeal the European Communities Act, to convert existing EU law into domestic UK law, and create a power to create the statute book, which is a book of all the laws, not the book of all the different statutes that we have. That would be that would be quite interesting. Uh, both are interesting. Anyway, and create a power to create the statute book so it can all be done in time for us leaving the EU on March the 29th, 2019. A year that up until that point was really fun because horizontally 2019 looks like a really happy Cyclops Elvis impersonator. Now, all in all, that sounds fairly straightforward. Uh, Not the Cyclops Elvis impersonator, but the other bit. But the Great Repeal Bill white paper doesn't actually have much information on it to say exactly how they're going to repeal over 12,000 EU regulations, 7,900 statutory instruments which have implemented EU laws, however many statutory instruments have observed EU laws, and over 1,300 UK acts that incorporate an EU influence. I mean, basically, the EU is all over our laws and principles, and getting it out of there will be a lot like picking four tonnes of glitter out of Brian Bess's beard, i.e. a much harder task than you think, and hugely headache-inducing over time. The White Paper also states that no major policy changes will be made, but leaves it open so that minor ones could be. Plus, they will be using the Henry VIII powers, which I believe are so-called, probably because the Rotund King was known as the Defender of Faith, even though he often misinterpreted that faith for his own gains. These powers have been called a self-inflicted blow to Parliament by Lord Judge, who's the most lordy, judgy-sounding lord of them all, as they allow the government to push through amendments without any say from MPs. And when you see that the White Paper says it needs to balance the need for scrutiny against the speed of this process, you worry that there are going to be a lot of laws rushed through and ticked off without much thought, and ministers can just sign off on laws that may affect people without anyone getting to challenge it. This is apparently more power and less accountability than any government has had during peacetime. Which is amazing when you think about how the vote was about taking back control. I guess unless, like the times of early Henry VIII, they meant taking back control from the people, handing it over to the leaders of a hugely unfair medieval feudal system. The European Union Exit and Trade Negotiations Subcommittee is Theresa May, who couldn't deport a woman because of a cat, Philip Hammond, who U-turned on a budget policy within seven days, Amber Rudd, who as Energy Secretary failed to deliver their mandatory renewable energy target, David Davis, who I'm sure isn't aware of where he is half the time, and Boris Johnson, whose own views on the EU depend on what article he's being paid to write and what job he might get out of it. Yeah, you know, I'm sure we'll be fine, right? Oh, and... Can you guess who this week is it that's leaving the UK because of Brexit? Because of Brexit. Can you guess who it is? This week it's 40% of UK games industries who say they may leave the UK after Brexit as they hire many, many EU workers to create all their games. Well, you know, I guess it must be frustrating watching someone create a problem without any clue how to solve it when you create virtually thousands of them, all with many solutions. So no wonder that they might give up on this quest unless some sort of patch is released soon, which is unlikely. I mean, if Brexit means the game industry can't console themselves, then... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're really in trouble. Right, here is the second speech. Uh, This one is by Ian Dunt, who was a guest on this podcast way back in episode 31, where, for some reason, the description on iTunes still says his name is Ian Arndt, even though I've changed it twice. Anyway, Ian is the editor of politics.co.uk, and he has recently released a book called Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now?, which is a very readable and clear guide of the options we have as we leave the EU. It's very, very worth a read. Ian's talk at last week's event was on the aspects of Brexit, and here is a clip of some of that. But none of them are as bad as Theresa May. (laughs) Theresa May is the queen of the process that is taking place right now. She has spent the last few weeks talking about an open global Britain. She went to Scotland and made a speech about why would you leave your largest market. She waxes lyrical now about the way that nations need to pool risk and pool resources. And yet, this is what she's doing. She's committed to the most extreme possible interpretation of a very vague mandate. She is completely in the pocket of the Brexit press and of the most right-wing of her backbenchers. You could be finished, you could be over. But UKIP, in any ideological sense, are in Downing Street. So there's an obligation for those who oppose, and also those who support her as well, if I still have any faith whatsoever in their ability to grapple with reality, to learn what the truth is about the things that we are discussing. No one talks realistically about what Article 50 entails. Nobody talks realistically about what WTO terms entail. Nobody talks realistically about the uniquely disadvantageous negotiating position which Britain now finds itself. And it is incumbent on people to start doing so and pay attention to what that might entail, what it means for the country and what the repercussions are, and to talk in terms that deal with empirical reality rather than emotion and hysteria and identity and chest-beating lunacy. So, and this is the boring part, this is what Article 50 entails. (laughs) I'm sort of emotionally bullied into you you having to listen to it now. Um, We triggered today, which is a very posh word for saying we sent a letter. Um, (laughs) We've already seen the initial response. There's been a leak today from the European Parliament sort of draft that's got Barnier behind it. 
it probably that's going to set the tone, or it's a pretty good indication of what the tone will be when we get the initial assessment from, uh, from the council. Um, and that should be by the, before the weekend. We expect that to be pretty tough. I mean, the stuff that we saw today from the European Parliament was tougher than I expected, and I've mostly been going around saying this is going to be really tough for a long time. <laughs> There'll then be a summit in April. Uh, they'll solidify the mandate around that time with member states. It'll be a two- to three-month process, roundabouts. On the end point of this two-year cycle, we lose six months on votes in Westminster and votes in the European Parliament. So you can block out these three months, you can block out those six months. The French elections are about to happen. No one's really paying much attention, although it'll probably happen, you know, in the same period as the mandate's being solidified. If it's Le Pen... I mean, you know, if you need a better indication of what Brexit entails, the fact that Le Pen passionately supports it should give you everything that you need to know. So possibly she would lobby for us to be given an easier time. Although on the flip side, the EU would think, my God, look at what's happening to the, to the post-war settlement, to liberal democracy. You know, we will stand up firm against this. So a Le Pen victory doesn't necessarily help. Macron, who, I'm not going to lie, I really like the cut of his jib, is going to spank us very, very hard if he's there. And he said very clearly that that is exactly how he would pursue it. We've got German elections in the autumn. Not much happens in Europe without the Germans. They will, you know, everything will stop for a while. One of the things that people don't talk about is the fact that actually German elections very often end with an interminable period where everyone sits around and tries to form a government. So you don't just lose the campaign. You lose all the time after the campaign, about, you know, let's say, you know, a month, two months afterwards, where nothing is getting done. You've already lost an awful lot of your two-year window right there. And at the end of that two-year window, there are severe repercussions for Britain if there is no deal. This is increasingly talked about like it is somehow okay. Boris Johnson called it perfectly okay. It is not perfectly okay. It is potentially catastrophic. At best, it is very damaging. The implications of us falling out without a deal go like this. Suddenly, there are checks on the border. In Ireland, crucially, and also, of course, across the Channel. Goods need to be checked to see whether they live up to single market standards. I mean, they do. Of course they do, because it's just the day after, and they were that way before, but it doesn't matter. What matters is the law, and you need to demonstrate that they are up to those standards. That means that a lorry is stopped, it is detained, the products are taken off for testing, this costs hundreds of pounds, this takes days, and it happens to every lorry. So very, very quickly, you get tailbacks of lorries from the border, all the way back to London. You have country of origin checks on lorry loads and on shipments as well from shippers. This involves finding out where a product came from, and not just the product, but the component parts of the product. This is worse than tariffs to any business, because it's not about the money it costs, it's about a permanent, bureaucratic, laborious requirement that just will not go away. And that's the reason that places like Nissan, who have been given some kind of hush-hush deal behind closed doors, will come out and say, we can handle a six-second delay in the supply chain. Six seconds. Any more than that, no promises. The problem with walking around a stage is when you can't remember what you're about to say next, you have to retreat <laughs> to the lectern. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> um, agricultural goods face exorbitant tariffs, around sort of 40%, up to 50%, for some products up to 80%. They're eye-watering. People are always very hung up about agricultural goods. We also 
have no sections where we can send those to the EU under their current rules. Those need to be created. But who creates them? The French. So we can't do it very, very quickly. It's up to the EU to do it. And if talks fall apart with no deal, day one of WTO terms, seems all agricultural products can't go across that border, along with all the other shipments that have been stopped. Services. Services won't have a heart attack, but they might bleed out. Passporting doesn't account for much. These guys are full of money. I mean, frankly, they can set up a separately, uh, uh, separately capitalised subsidiary somewhere in Europe quite easily. Most of them already have offices that they can do that with. That's all they really need to do to please the EU regulators. The city will probably lose about 10% uh, capacity, 12% capacity. It has several advantages. One of them is that nobody wants to live in Frankfurt. Um, and there isn't really that much schooling or housing there for people to, to go to. They can't handle the full capacity of the city. But that shouldn't make people relaxed. Because once you come under a European regulator, they can ask for further and further requirements in the years that come. Those requirements will almost certainly be on capitalization and risk management. And after a while, these companies might just think, why is it that we have our headquarters in London again? And you start to see a slow drift away under a new regulatory regime on the continent for absolutely no reason whatsoever. This part, by the way, isn't even hard Brexit. The truth is those guys are going already. That's just a done deal. And the first people to lose their jobs on that are people who aren't actually very rich bankers. They're people on medium and low incomes, administrative back office staff. This is what you do if you're a bank. You don't move that you're high guys. You think, well, we can pay cheap rent in Poland. We can pay much lower wages in Poland. So we move all the admin guys <laughs> by move. What they mean is make redundant and hire over here and we send a few senior guys, and that's how we satisfy the EU regulators. It's already happening, and it, it will happen. Then there's the law and regulation. We're going to transpose all of our laws over onto all of the EU laws onto our books. What we won't be able to do is say, who is the regulator? Who is the regulator now for medicines and pharmaceuticals? We can move that law onto our books, but that doesn't tell us that suddenly we're recognizing a European regulator. That's completely nuts. If we're just going to Brexit so that we can just do whatever they say, that seems to make no sense whatsoever. And yet, are we really going to create regulators in all of these areas? And I mean a lot of areas. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of these things. All of them need to have experts found. They need to have officials, the jobs put out. They need to be trained up. They need to have systems that go online in time. And if you don't, you have regulatory chaos. You have a black hole in your legal system. And who invests in a country in that kind of situation? So in this sort of chaotic environment, Britain will suddenly find itself saying, and this is the thing that they tell us is going to be oh so absolutely fine, we're going to go to the WTO. This is where the tariff rate quotas come in, by the way, and I'm very sorry. You go to the WTO and you need to separate your schedules. Your schedules are menus of your trading relationships with other countries. So let's say there's one for goods, there's one for services. Right now, they're under an EU umbrella. We need to take those, make them our own. There's a problem with this, and the problem is tariff rate quotas. This is how tariff rate quotas work. If Thailand sends 10,000 tonnes of poultry, you would put one tariff at 8% for the first 5,000, and then let's say at 5% for the second. The reason that's problematic is because all of that's going to Europe. So you've got to figure out how much of that chicken ends up in Britain. Nobody wants to do that calculation. It is impossible. I mean, the, the EU still trades on tariff rate quotas from two expansions back 
sort of secretly at the WTO. Nobody talks about it. They just put it in this drawer and goes, well, no one can deal with that. We will try to find a solution, almost certainly. I mean, they haven't announced this, but this will almost certainly be what they do, by just taking the average of the last three years' trade flows. So that's fine. But the thing is, and this really is the kicker, anyone that exports to you, any country, can start litigation if it feels that you have not given it a fair share of that tariff rate quota. That's almost every country on Earth. When it comes to land... It's mostly New Zealand, as you might have guessed, that sends us the land. And yet there are about seven or eight other countries there. And just because they have small industries doesn't mean that those industries aren't politically important. Fishing is a small industry in Britain. And right now it wields disproportionate influence. In fact, it's probably going to make us crack open negotiations over fish stock quotas, which is also really quite mad. So we could easily find that in that first moment, as we're out the EU as we're suffering these stoppages on our borders, as we face legal black holes, we suddenly go into litigation with many of our importers. We would suddenly find that number one in that queue would be the EU itself, which is an independent actor at the WTO. So you can walk out from them over here, but you may well find them waiting for you over here. And if budget talks break down, as is perfectly possible, the EU could be engaged in a protracted court case with us at this stage over that budget. So when they say we're going to go get all these other wonderful trade deals, they mean amid a series of legal disputes at the WTO and while fighting a court case with our major market over the amount of budgetary contributions that we refuse to pay them, which does not seem like a very sensible way in order for us to start our trading life. And yet, it may be good if it discouraged us, because once we ended up in those rooms in America, in China, in India. These are much more powerful countries than we are, and they will make demands. And their demands will be about maximizing the amount of exports they can get into our market. For America, that'll be reducing chemical standards. That'll be reducing data protection standards. That'll be reducing the standards on the food that we get, so that they can send us the hormone-injected beef and the chlorine-soaked chicken that you have probably heard about. In India, Ironically enough, that'll probably just mean that they want freedom of movement. Really, that will be it. And in China, they'll want changes of the way that we block their steel coming in. And we'll probably give it to them. And it will cost us probably our entire domestic steel industry. But that's what happens when you have no control. And when you just chaotically leave the union that you've been in all this time without any plan in place, and in a fit of peak. Everything comes down to this one central question. Time and capacity. Two years isn't enough time. We don't have enough negotiating capacity. We're going to train up civil servants, throw a book at them, say, scrub up on that. In you go. They go in against some of the most impressive trade negotiators and specialists in the world. These people that have been doing this their whole lives. They're going to eat them for breakfast. We're going to get sucked into a budget dispute where the right-wing press are saying that it's some kind of insult for us to pay 50 billion when in actual fact, Vince Cable privatized Royal Mail a few years ago, paid 32 billion on the pensions liabilities and 10 on the privatization itself. And I can't remember anyone then suggesting that this was the worst thing that has ever happened to the country. It was completely unacceptable in any way. And then we're going to have the debate over EU citizens in the UK and UK citizens in the EU. And that will probably be sortable. It'll probably be sortable early. 
But even there, you need to make a point and hold it fast that there needs to be give and take from the British side. Because it's not just a question of saying anyone that was here at the referendum gets to stay. Europe is going to ask for more than that. It looks, by what we saw today, that Europe is going to ask for any European that comes up to March 2019 to be given full benefits, full rights. And it's very possible that the right-wing press would object to that. Europe will ask not just for residency rights, but for NHS rights as well, and for welfare rights as well, as they rightly should, by the way. But the right-wing press will object to that too. And it's perfectly possible that talks will break down over that. And then somewhere through this, Theresa May has to sign a comprehensive trade deal, which took Canada five years for one just on goods, which is by far the easiest part to deal with. Doesn't even cover services. This is a service economy. It took another two years to ratify, not least because it was almost blocked by a regional parliament in Belgium. And Theresa May thinks that we can do all of that, plus an interim arrangement, plus the full ratification in the two-year period. It cannot be done. It is not possible. And anyone that had spoken to experts and looked at the evidence would know that and would not think that it is patriotic to press on with an emotional and hysterical approach to this sort of crucial issue. They want people who have checked the information and checked the data and pursue it in a careful way. Ian can be found on Twitter at Ian Dunt, D-U-N-T. Uh, in fact, it's very lucky I just misspelled it, aunt, I suppose. Uh, and his book, Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now, is available from Canbury Press and at all good bookshops. I mean, I don't know if bad bookshops sell it, or really, I suppose, what constitutes a bad bookshop? I mean, I guess Subway is a bad bookshop, as they don't have any books, do they? They've just got sandwiches, and I don't think they sell Ian's books, so, you know, it's probably best to go to a good bookshop. As I said before, the full recording of the first section of that show from last week is going to go up online at some point very, very soon, probably within this week. So I will post links on the at Bro Twitter, the Bro Facebook group, and on the Patreon, Patreon, Patreon page as well. Um, and, 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 a little bit of an incentive, if you do want to join the Patreon page, I'm going to be adding my bits of stand-up, uh, probably for both halves of the event, to the Patreon for all subscribers in the next few days, as well as an extra couple of minutes from my chat with James Devoy last week that I forgot to post on there because I am rubbish. So uh, if you do want to donate, go to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro and you can have all those special extra things. This week, uh, with the great repeal bill ever imminent, uh, I asked you lot, them lot out there, you know, you with the faces and the legs, um, I asked you, what British names would you give to repealed EU laws? And oh, you were so good, oh so good at the wordplay. Mackinson says all treaties sound like they were already named by Russell Brand. Um, I suppose, yeah, but really, they'd have to be treaty wheaties, wouldn't they? Um, and he also said all the laws that the DWP work from are replaced with the worst bits of Dickens' work. Which, come on, mate, I think Ian Duncan Smith has already done that, actually, in the last few years. Um, Philip Alexander says anything that supports workers' rights can just be grouped under the banner of enemy of businesses. Uh, that's frighteningly probably going to happen. Um, Paul Jenkins said the working time directive to be replaced with the get your backside into work when we tell you directive. Energy if efficient appliances to be discontinued and replaced with dark Wednesdays to make up for the power shortage. Um, I can't, I, I sort of also feel like that's going to be some sort of incentive to buy two tickets for a cinema uh, for the price of one. Um, blue flag beaches to be replaced with greenish brown flag beaches. And at Hello Dave, also went for the working time directive. He said uh, that could be called the come on now, it's working time directive uh, to remind Corbyn that he has to actually do something. 
And at Jono, Jono04, uh, he sent loads and loads, but I picked uh, a few of my favourites. Uh, VAT on energy can be changed to the winter is coming law. Uh, renewables can be changed to choke the poor law. And length of front lawn, the Remona law. Lovely. Or even Remona lawn. And lastly, Rob Skeen uh, on Facebook said, the vacuum cleaner energy limit to be renamed the UK sucks bill. Excellent work. And that is it for this week's Slightly Shorter Show. Um, I did want to add a very quick... Do you have opinions? No, I think they taste bad. I think that you mean onions. Yes, they're disgusting. Hey, that's an opinion. Hooray for onions. Hooray for onions. And just say that I'm now personally of the opinion that we have to make this Brexit work as well as possible. That's what I've decided. Um, it's happened. It is happening. Uh, we've got to make it work. I'm not sure it will work, but I really, really hope it does. I mean, though, Nigel Farage did say that he'd leave Britain if it didn't work. So, to be fair, it wouldn't all be bad if everything goes to shit, would it? You know, every cloud. While I do get really angered by this sheer dogged determinism by hard Brexiteers that you shouldn't be gloomy about it and it will be amazing and, hey, there's no turning back, which I always think you'd never say that about a good thing, would you? It's like, we're going on holiday, there's no turning back. I mean, why would you say that? Isn't it a good holiday? What's going to happen to us on this holiday? Why would we want to? Um, but look, while those ardent Brexiteers really anger me with that kind of attitude, because, I, you know, and again, I, as I always say this, I think if you wanted to leave, you've got reasonable reasons for it, that's fine, but you've got to know what the consequences might be. But I have to say, I'm also quite envious of that blind faith, you know, because the more I learn about Brexit, the more I realise just how much work it's all going to be and how, with the people currently in charge, the opposition and other politicians we have, it just doesn't seem like a recipe for fun times for the next few years. I mean... I should be clear, the recipe for fun times officially is two scoops of high-quality enjoyment, a cup of exciting things, two teaspoons of whoa, no way, and a Kit Kat and Netflix. Kit Kat Chunky, let's be fair. In fact, to be honest, you probably just need Kit Kat Chunky and Netflix, don't you? Especially if it's one of the peanut butter ones. <sighs> anyway, uh, a good listen this week is the Guardian Politics podcast from last week, um, as it was a live panel post the Article 50 triggering, uh, and it's with uh, Alex Salmond uh, from the SNP, Conservative Graham Brady, who's very pro-Brexit, uh, Scottish Conservative Ian Duncan, who is... Uh, was a Remainer but is now sort of going along with Brexit. Uh, Gina Miller, who's the amazing woman who took the um, case to court for MPs to have to have a say in the Brexit deal. And uh, Natalie Nugaraid, I think I'm pronouncing that right, um, who's the foreign affairs commentator for The Guardian. And the whole podcast is very, very interesting, very worth a listen. But I also found it particularly interesting to hear uh, Natalie uh, Nugaraid point out that the EU doesn't want anything for Brexit. They didn't want Brexit at all. They don't have any thing that they want to gain from it you know they've got other shit to do there are 27 other countries and really this has sprung up and needs to be dealt with quickly so other more important things can happen it's funny it just sort of made me realize i've been so wrapped up in our news i forgot that the rest of the world isn't talking about brexit every two minutes and when you look at it like that you know we're the customer asking the waiter for a fork instead of chopsticks because we don't really like using them while that waiter's trying to serve 27 other people before the food goes cold and making sure the russian restaurant across the road isn't killing people we matter you know in the uk because we're human beings in a place in the planet but we don't matter more than other people in other places on the planet despite what blue passport desiring malformed banana wanting dirty beach demanding newspapers think anyway 
that is all for this week's show. Uh, next week, I'll have an interviewee again. I know. And there'll be more stuff. And I'm going to catch up on Trump stuff. And I'm going to try my best not to speak to anyone for a few days until my voice is better. Either that um, or I'm going to start a Tom Waits tribute act. Um, until then... Please, please, please do tell people about the show. Review it on iTunes or Stitcher or TripAdvisor just to see if people try and jump inside your phone to stay there. Um, drop me a quid or two on patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or ko-fi.com, that's ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. And do drop me a line at parpolbro on Twitter, the parpolbro group on Facebook or partly political broadcast at gmail.com about anything you like, you know, but especially your recipe for fun times. Although not in imperial measures, though, or you're going to get replies from me with rude words in them like... Penis. This week's show was brought to you by the letter of notification of intention to withdraw and the number 27, which is both the number of EU countries without the UK and the number of dresses, and it looks a bit like a snake about to eat a duck. Yeah, the EU's definitely doing all right without us, isn't it? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.